Is that interesting? Okay. Admit. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Closing the chat. And. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, it is such a pleasure and an honor to be here. We have Ronnie in the house. We have Jennifer from Seattle, Yaakov Levine, my old friend, tuning in from L.A., Maxime from Chicago, Eleonora from, I think, New York, Queens, maybe? Am I right? And uh, let's see who else tunes in as we go on. So I'm very excited to be here with you today on the holiday of 420, and I'd like to share with you some ideas about drugs and Judaism we're going to try to go into uh, some of the Talmudic sources uh, for or against drugs, and uh, and then hopefully some Kabbalistic sources as well. And hopefully we'll come out with a deeper understanding into the idea of highs in life, as well as um, what true joy is all about. So. Uh, if, with your permission, I'm going to share my screen, and I definitely am very, very happy for to get some participation. So please feel free to uh, jump in at any time. Okay, you guys ready? Can everyone see that? Okay, good. All right. So Jews and drugs go way back. They go really far back, and uh, just in recent history. We have uh, this quote from Re President Richard Nixon speaking to his chief of staff. You know, it's a funny thing. Every one of the bastards that are out for legalizing marijuana is Jewish. What's the matter with the Jews? I suppose it's because most of them are psychiatrists. Good old Richard Nixon. <laughs> nice, Dan. Okay. So, uh, but the truth is, is it goes back even further. And I'm going to share with you some sources um, that you might find interesting. So in the list of the spices that are burned in the incense in the temple, in the various daily services, there was incense burned in the temple. On Yom Kippur, there was incense burned in the temple. Um, and one of the spices is called Kine Bosom. Kine Bosim is uh, translated often as a fragrant reed. The word Khan, Kane, means a, a reed. But uh, some point out that there's an interesting connection between the word Kane Bosim and the word cannabis, as one anthropologist pointed out. It's astonishing the resemblance between the Semitic canvas canvas, right? The word canvas comes from Hebrew, and the Scythian cannabis led me to suppose that the Scythian word was of Semitic origin. These entomological discussions were in parallel to arguments drawn from history. The Semites could also have spread the word during their migration through Asia Minor. So it's definitely possible, according to some anthropologists, that the word cannabis comes from the Hebrew kenebosim, which was one of the spices burned in the temple incense. Uh, but certainly the word canvas is used frequently throughout the Talmud uh, to refer to canvas, like, you know, like the material canvas was uh, used for instead of linen, because linen hadn't yet been uh, figured out for a while. Uh, in Babylonian times, we started to use linen, but before that canvas was the material of choice for many, many different uh, uh, textile purposes. But um, there have been some uh, archaeological evidence that that can that cannabis that marijuana was utilized in ancient times in Israel. There was some found in an old uh, Jewish temple, many thousand year old Jewish temple predating the Babylonian exile, and uh, there was some found in a in the in the fossilized remains of a girl. Possibly it was used for medicinal purposes. But the smoking of uh, hashish and marijuana was that came from the Americas because in Euro in the Middle East and Europe smoking things had not really been invented. Uh, 
They used to uh, use it as incense and something called hotboxing. I'm not even sure what that is. What's hotboxing? Anyone? <laughs> yeah, we're listening to you. So hotboxing is like turning your your car into a bong, basically. All right, I get the idea. So there was some evidence of the Scythians having done that. And Yaakov, you had a question? Uh, yeah, first I was going to explain hotboxing. They explained it well. All right, thank um, you. Smoke building in close space, but canvas, uh, for understand, is the material used to be made from hemp. Right, correct. Canvas is hemp. That's what canvas is. Yes. Sorry, I didn't explain that. All right, let's uh, let's continue and see what other sources we have to share with you today. So the Code of Jewish Law. According to the Code of Jewish Law, one should make the wick for Shabbos candles from something, a material that the wick itself burns nicely. For example, flax, cotton, or canvas. Again, hemp rope. And uh, according to... One of the famous commentaries on the Code of Jewish Law. It is actually the best material to make your Shabbos candles out of. Hemp. You're going to have a really lit Shabbos if you start Shabbos off with burning some hemp in your living room. So uh, it gives a whole new meaning to the idea of Shabbos candles. Lighting up your Shabbos. Alright, so uh, moving, <laughs> moving right along. Moving right along. Okay, here's a great one. Yaakov likes this next one. Uh, in Hebrew, the word for smoke is the word ashan or ashen. And uh, it's actually a very Kabbalistic word because it's, uh, it's the acronym for three Hebrew words, olam shana nefesh, which is the three dimensions of reality. Olam is world. Shana is year, time, and nefesh is soul. Those are the three dimensions. There's an interface in, uh, in all things between world, uh, time, and soul. For example, Yom Kippur, which we just spoke about, is the holiest day of the year in time. The temple in Jerusalem, and a specifically a specific place in the temple, is the holiest place in space. And the high priest is the holiest person in soul. So that's the word smoke in Hebrew. But as we know, every letter in Hebrew has a numerical value. So if you add up the numerical value of the word ashan, ayin is 70, shin is 300, and nun is 50. 70, 300 plus 50 equals, you guessed it, 420. Coincidence? I don't think so. So... Let's, let's talk about a little bit what Judaism says about weed. And uh, so to quote Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, one of the greatest uh, halachic Jewish legal authorities of the past century, um, writes that marijuana is obviously forbidden. And he's writing probably in the, the 1960s, 70s, my guess is. Um, it is obviously forbidden as it violates many basic laws of our Torah. Don't get nervous, guys. Okay, please don't get nervous. I'm just sharing ideas with you. Okay, I'm not telling you to change your lifestyle. We don't preach. We don't enforce. We don't, we don't believe in pressure here. So uh, just listen and learn. Um, first of all, it physically injures a person. And according to Torah law, you're not allowed to do something that's dangerous for your body. Even if there are people who are not physically affected by this, it mentally affects a person and destroys his mind and prevents him from understanding things properly. So there's two issues. One is that it burns brain cells. And two, in the time that you are uh, under the influence, you don't have the ability to concentrate. And Judaism is all about uh, mindfulness. Mindfulness about every moment in life. And it's very hard to do mitzvahs properly when you're under the influence of any substance. And uh, this is a terrible thing, since not only can the individual not properly study Torah, he can also not pray and properly perform mitzvahs, since doing them mindlessly is considered as if they were not done at all. There are rabbis who I know 
in our times. I happen to know one of them personally who refuse painkillers, novocation, uh, novocaine, or anything like that when undergoing surgery because they don't want to dull their mind, even for a moment. And uh, I happen to know a rabbi in Israel who had to undergo a very uh, complicated dental surgery, something like a root canal, and he refused pain medicine. And he went into like a kind of like a meditative trance, thinking about something deeply, and he went through the surgery without any pain. And there are numerous stories of rabbis who have done that throughout time. It's the ability to transcend mind over matter, right? So, uh, and, and there are people that won't, won't do it because they don't want to lose a moment of their ability to concentrate and focus on what's real and what matters, to learn Torah and to focus on gratitude and, and, uh, and, and reality. But uh, we'll continue to discuss this a little bit further. Furthermore, he's creating within himself a very strong desire, i.e. an addiction, as well as a desire for physical things, right? Munchies, i.e. munchies. There are many that cannot control and withstand that desire, and it could lead to other things. So just to summarize, the halachic, the Jewish legalistic perspective, which again, we are not here to really discuss in depth, and we're not telling anyone what to do. So don't, don't throw away your pipe. You got to make your own decisions. Talk to your local Orthodox rabbi to, uh, to discuss what you should do, practically speaking. But number one is it could be addictive. And there are studies that show that marijuana is actually maybe not addictive, but it could form a dependency. Uh, it could be harmful for your body, and that would include uh, alcohol and, and uh, cigarettes would be included in that prohibition. It dulls your brain. And again, uh, getting drunk, although uh, Judaism doesn't have an issue with having a, you know, a beer here or there, or especially on Shabbos, we start any holy thing with a glass of wine, a cup of wine, kiddush. A wedding ceremony has a cup of wine. A bris has a cup of wine. And uh, we do make l'chaims on Shabbos. That's shots. But to get to the point of being drunk, meaning where you're actually in an altered state of consciousness, so there's only one day a year that we do that, and that's on Purim, and then it is a mitzvah to become blackout drunk. But you got to hang out with me on Purim to learn more about that. Um, uh, additionally, it increases physical urges, which we're trying to control as uh, in, according to spirituality, we're trying to get control of our body, not have our body control us. And when a person has the munchies or is under the influence, you, they notice that they're unable to control many of their physical desires. They become more physical. And, and it could also, also be a gateway to other drugs. So why do people do drugs? And this is the participatory part. part. And you guys on Facebook, feel free to chat in as well. Why would someone do drugs? Tell me some of the reasons why you do drugs. I'm just taking it as an assumption, you know, because, uh, you know, let's face it, you know, legalization is here. It's a new time period. And uh, although uh, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was writing uh, many years ago, and I don't believe there's a new, uh, a new perspective in Jewish law, there could be some differences now that it's legal. And one of the prime, one of the main reasons that I forgot to mention is that according to Judaism, you have to follow the law of the land. So if it's illegal in your country, so you can't break the law. But uh, perhaps there are other opinions out there that I'm not aware of. So guys, why do people do drugs? Let's hear some reasons. Unmute and call it out or type it into the chat. Hey. Wow, did you see that? Did you see how I just did that? I put it up on the uh, bullet point. That was an accident. Didn't mean to press that. So that's so cool. So one reason that people, one reason that people might do drugs is to escape, to escape from their reality, to escape from whatever is going on in their life that's negative. And that certainly is a primary reason why people do drugs, to heal their pain, that's for sure. All right, um, another one, another possible reason. Hey, Mike, good to see you. Another possible reason could be to uh, look cool. Maybe included in that is to party and to have fun. All right, so it could be that one reason for doing drugs is to have fun and to party. Sharpness of clarity, didn't know about that, that one. I thought it was the opposite, but uh, some people... Uh, is that true? Some people have clarity. Do you mean like like what people are writing? Expanded consciousness, 
consciousness expansion, uh, inspiration, depends on the drug, right? And I know now that they have with dispensaries, I actually drove past the dispensary this morning, there was a line going out the door. Um, so I know they have different types now. So another possible reason that no one mentioned is for pleasure, relaxation, right? Just like, you know, drinking a beer at the end of the day or watching Netflix to unwind. That's uh, probably a pretty common reason why people do drugs, especially weed. And finally, as some of you mentioned, is for spiritual experience, expanded consciousness. And that is the one we're going to focus on most tonight. We're going to discuss that reason in depth. So I want to share with you um, how I got into this uh, topic specifically. Uh, took place about six years ago. I happened to open up a copy of the National Geographic cover that you're seeing over here uh, entitled Weed, the New Science of Marijuana. And uh, they had an article in there called High Science, where, um, as you know, Jews, of course, are have always been into experimentation and new new ideas. So it happens to be that the leader, leading country in the research of marijuana in, and medical marijuana specifically is, of course, uh, is of course Israel. So um, at the forefront is a Dr. Rafal Mashulam, who is a Bulgarian Jew who moved to Israel, became a professor of biochemistry at Hebrew University, and he is known as the father of cannabis research. He started researching weed in 1965, and he just had his 90th birthday, I believe. And he's still going strong, so it must be all that experiments that he was doing kept him good, kept him healthy. So I read the following quote in the National Geographic, which really boiled my blood. Said Rafal uh, Mashalim was the first scientist to active to isolate the active ingredient of weed that's known as THC, tetrahydrocannabinol or something like that, and uh, and he also. Um, isolated the receptor in the brain that responds to weed. And that is known, he named it Anandamide. Anandamide. And uh, he writes in the National Biographic, I named it Anandamide after the Sanskrit word Ananda, which means supreme joy. And as I read that, I thought, that's weird. He's Jewish. Why didn't he give it a Hebrew name? How cool would that be if we'd had a Hebrew name associated with it? And then the National Geographic beat me to it. And they asked him, Doctor, why didn't you give it a Hebrew name for joy? And responded the good doctor, in Hebrew, there are not so many words for happiness. Jews don't like being happy. And this boiled my blood. And I decided to write a letter to the editor of the National Geographic. I do not know if they ever published it. But it also gave birth to a, uh, an article on H.com called Marijuana and Jewish Joy. Uh, feel free to Google that. I'm going to sharing with you a lot of the content from that article right now. Um, so that really, really bothered me. And one of the reasons it bothered me so much is because... One of the examples often given to describe Judaism's uniqueness is that in various cultures around the world, you find in the language you can learn a lot about the values of the society. And one of the examples often given is the Anuet, the Eskimos have like over 10 words for snow because they live in snow. That's like they're, they're experts in snow. There's soft snow, there's hard snow, there's runny snow, there's icy snow, right? There's all sorts of different types of snow because they live in it. They live and breathe it. So too, the Bedouins who live in the desert in Israel and throughout the Middle East, they have over 10 words for sand. 10 different words for sand. All different types of sand. Again, you have, you have hard sand, soft sand, wet sand, you know, different, all, you know, that's, that's just, that's their reality. So it happens to be that Dr. Meshulam, although he knows a lot about weed, he does not know a lot about the Hebrew language or about Judaism. Because it happens to be that in Hebrew, Hebrew is often described as a language of joy. Because in Judaism, joy is the number one value. And there happen to be 10, at least 10 different words for joy in Hebrew. And I, 
I'll share with you just a few of them here. All right, we have Simcha, Sason, Rina, Gila, Chedva, Ditsa, Tzahala, Osha, Ora, and I'm even missing a few. So that's what I came up with today. So there are over 10 words for joy in Hebrew because it's such a foundational part of Judaism. So I want to share with you just a few different uh, Torah uh, sources about the importance of joy. And then I want to kind of go deeper into what real joy is and why I think the professor got it totally wrong. That a high is a high. There is nothing to do with happiness or joy in a, in a drug high. And I want to talk to you about real highs are all about, what real joy is all about, and, uh, and hopefully we'll discuss uh, natural spiritual highs and how to get them and what to do with them. So, uh, says the Torah, the Torah itself, our first source, all these curses, all the bad things throughout history will come upon you because you didn't serve God with joy and gladness of heart. There you have it, a primary source in the Torah that says all bad things happen to you because you're not happy. Okay, let's, uh, let's continue in the sources. As it says, King David says in Psalms, in Tehillim, serve God with gladness, come before him with joyful song. And if you read the book of Psalms, it is over and over and over again, different verses that express joy and different expressions of happiness. Now, here's a source from the Talmud. The Talmud says that the divine presence of prophecy, prophets, in order to receive prophecy in ancient times, had to go into a meditative state and needed to be intensely happy. So there used to be musicians that would play music around the prophetic schools and academies in order to help the prophets get into an ecstatic state in order for the divine presence, the Shekhinah, to dwell upon them, in order for them to get prophetic insight. The divine presence only rests upon someone in a state of intense joy, says the Talmud. Now, the Hasidic teachings focus primarily on joy, and probably one of the most famous to talk about this is Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, although he is not unique. All the Hasidic teachers talk about the importance of joy. It is a great mitzvah, a commandment or a good deed to be in a state of joy always. Mitzvah gedola lios besimcha tamid. And it was even made into a song. So it's super, super important to be happy always. And the Hasidic masters actually say, another Hasidic master, Rabbi Aaron of Karlin, um, says, who my son is named after, says that there's one thing that is not a sin, but it leads to all other sins, and that's sadness. So, uh, so sadness is is the opening to all bad things in life. So we have to learn how to overcome that. And now I want to share with you a modern source. This source comes from Professor Tal Ben Shachar, who uh, was the, uh, the professor, of Harvard professor of positive psychology, who taught the most popular course in Harvard history called Positive Psychology 1504. It was over flooding with over 1,000 uh, students every semester. And he recently moved back to Israel, and he, uh, he made a couple of movies that you can find online about why he thinks Israel is the best country in the world, why he moved back to Israel, and how, why the happiness rating in Israel is higher than most countries in the world. Um, they do studies like this, uh, the Pew study or whatever, that, that found out that Israel has a happiness rating higher than most other countries in the world. And uh, so he says as follows. Many of the ideas discovered by modern psychologists had actually been present for thousands of years in traditional Jewish sources. I can tell you that from personal experience, having gotten my master's in social work and learned a little bit of positive psychology, it is all in the Talmud and Jewish sources. So we've been saying these things for thousands of years. Okay, so that is a little bit of background. So... Let's, uh, let's just see a few other ideas, and then we will uh, take off the screen share, and I'll try to share a little bit of Kabbalistic ideas with you a little bit more informally. So, as fun as drugs may be, according to Judaism, that ain't real joy. What is the definition of real joy? What's the definition of happiness? How do we, uh, how do we define joy? In life, so if we look at the 
most common word for happiness in Hebrew is the word simcha. And there's two interesting things we can learn about the word simcha. One is that it shares the same letters as the word in Hebrew machshava, which means thought. Because we know that happiness does not have to do with what you have. Right? The Hebrew word hap, the word English word happiness comes from the Latin word hap, happenstance, which means luck. In the in the West, we think happiness is something that you're lucky to get. If you're lucky, you'll be happy. If you have the right car, the right bank account, the right spouse, the right house, the right job, then you might be lucky enough to get happy. But Torah says no. Simcha is in your mind. Happiness is in your mind. It's all about your attitude about what you have. As it says in the Talmudic uh, teaching, Perkei Avos, who is a rich person? Someone who's happy with what they have. So true happiness is focusing on the positivity in your life. So one, lesson number one is that joy takes place in your mind. It has to do with your attitude. And number two, the word simcha is related to the Hebrew word semach which means growth. True joy comes from growth. So I want you to think about moments in your life where you have achieved true joy, true bliss. And uh, you got to uh, think think a little bit harder than, you know, those drug experiences, those parties, they are fun. That's a good word for it. They're really fun. But if you want to think about true joyful experiences, some of you might not even have had them yet. But I'll tell you what I think about. I think about my wedding. I think about having kids. I think about those graduation moments when you've accomplished something really, really hard. Um, I look forward to marrying off my kids, to having grandkids. True happiness comes from achievements in life, overcoming challenges, working hard, fulfilling your purpose, learning, growing, accomplishing. Think about a doctor in an emergency room. What type of feeling do you think a doctor is going through while they're operating on a patient saving someone's life? What do you guys think? What do you think that experience is? What, what emotions, what sensations? pure adrenaline so they're like buzzed a little bit they're 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 uh exhilarated like like it's on wow so so when when uh so lance shared with us that when surgeons uh are introduced to a, a patient in the emergency room, they get a rush of, uh, of adrenaline, of exhilaration. How else do you think they feel when they're in there saving someone's life? They might feel tremendous sense of fulfillment, meaning, purpose, passion, joy. There's one thing they're probably not feeling, and that's fun. I don't think a surgeon would tell you, yeah, my job's really fun. Might say my job's really heavy, really meaningful, really important. But I don't think the word fun would fit into the lexicon. Why is that? So it happens to be in Torah, there is no word for fun. In Hebrew, in, in, in ancient Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, there's no word for fun. Why is that? Why no word for fun? Because according to, if there's no word in Hebrew, that means the thing doesn't exist. That, the th that means that thing is not real. That means that thing isn't really a, a Jewish value. Because what's the definition of fun? I'm going to give you a definition of fun. Pleasure without purpose. Definition of fun. Pleasure without purpose. You guys with me on that? Agree? Disagree? Pleasure without purpose. It's the reward without the work. For example, right? if you climb a mountain... It's really hard. What do you feel when you get to the top of the mountain and you look out? You look out at the ex vast expanse of hills and valleys. You feel on top of the world. How do you feel up there? You feel elated. You feel high. 
That's a high. That's a high that came about because you worked for it. You earned it. Right? What about your stoner friend who says, you know what? That mountain, that looks really tall. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm just going to sit down here. I'll stay by the car. I'm just going to light up down here. And so he's sitting by the car and he's going like this. Right? He's got his legs up going like this. And you're at the top of the mountain and you're going like this also. And you're both chilling. But your experience is completely different because he's at the bottom of the mountain and you're at the top of the mountain. You've earned that experience. You deserve that experience of high. He didn't do anything for his. And therefore, that's fun. Yours is pleasure. You got that? You get the difference? Let's give another example. Hooking up at the party. All right? Been there, done that. College frat party. What's... What's the difference between hooking up at a party and a long-term committed relationship? I mean, you know, it's all the same physical stuff, right? The answer is they're worlds away from each other. One the, is, yeah? Because I think there's, there's emotions involved in one and just physicality involved in the other. Excellent. Excellent. So the physical relationship at the party is purely physical. You don't even know the person's name. There's no connection. There's no emotions. I mean, there might feel like emotions but it's not a real emotional connection there's no spirituality you don't know who they are you're never going to see them again but a relationship is a, an emotional connection that comes about not because of, not through the physical pleasure because of the work and the commitment a real long-lasting relationship comes along with it long-lasting pleasure and that pleasure is the byproduct of hard work and commitment so the goal of life is growth, which leads to true fulfillment and joy. True joy. Any questions on anything that we've said so far? So I have one for you. Rabbi, what's wrong with do? I mean, I hear everything that you're saying. You know, I get it. It's not the meaning of life. But what's wrong with doing it once in a while? Come on. Like a person's got to chill out sometimes. Got to relax. So, again, we're not telling anyone what to do. But the answer, I think, is simple. Right? That, that when you find true meaning in life, when you find true purpose, you want to focus on what's real. Once you discover real relationship, once you realize that true long-term committed relationship is really the most pleasurable thing you'll ever have in life, so why waste your time at the party or at the clubs or at the bar. Once you realize that what true highs are all about, so you don't need to waste your time on an artificial high. And I'll talk to you in a moment about what real highs, real spiritual highs are all about. When it comes to uh, taking a break and relaxing, so just don't delude yourself into thinking that that's the, really what's important in life. Oftentimes, we mistake the entertainment moments, and this is a big uh, Western value thing here, that the meaning of life is to make enough money that you can chill out for the rest of your life. You ever think about that? Make enough money that you can chill out on the beach, on a hammock, and never have to work a day again in your life. So Judaism says that is absolutely false. That is not the meaning of life. The meaning of life is to work. The meaning of life is to achieve and to accomplish. You need moments of vacation to get your energy back to go back to work. On, on the contrary, in the Western world, it's that we work in order to get the vacation. We work nine to five job that we hate in order to enjoy the weekend blackout drunk. Right? Or, or we work uh, 355 days a year in order to get 10 days blackout something on the beach. Right, so uh, Judaism says no. That's not that's that's the wrong attitude. We're not working for the vacation. We're vacationing in order to work, in order to work on what really matters in life. You can tell a lot about a society by their their drugs of choice. What are the two most popular drugs of choice in America? Probably in the whole world today. Caffeine and alcohol. Caffeine and alcohol. Caffeine to get you through a nine to five job you hate, and alcohol to help you forget about it on the weekend. So. That's, uh, that's really the wrong approach. We should love our life.
I always tell people I had I did a whole series on uh, work-life balance and finding your purpose. And one of the one of my lines is that uh, Confucius says, "Find a job you love and never work a day in your life." And Rabbi G says, "Confucius is wrong. You don't need to find a job you love. Find a life you love, and even a job that you don't love becomes meaningful if you love your life." Got that? Okay. So. Um, so the problem is, is that when those escapes become the goal of your life, and that's when it borders on addiction. And uh, the question is, are you getting through the day in order to toke at night? Are you waking and baking? Or uh, is it a weekend binge? Then you know you've gone too far. If it's, you know, here and there, so ask your local Orthodox rabbi if it's the right thing for you. But uh, probably not the worst thing in the world, but I'm not advocating for or against. Now, what about other reasons for drugs? We mentioned escapism. So that's never good. And that's where addictions come from. When a person is trying to escape their pain and run away from reality, run away from their problems. And uh, that's the same, same thing with all addictions, whether it's sex addiction, pornography addiction, food addiction, it's running away from the pain that is very real in your life. Uh, uh, adultery, right? Uh, these are all means of escaping our problems. And the Torah response to that is deal with your problems. Go to therapy, heal yourself, and uh, and face your problems. And that's really the that's really why we have problems is so that we can work on ourselves and fix ourselves. Everyone has trauma, some more than others, but uh, to escape and avoid our problems only makes it worse. So we really have to get help and not turn to drugs or other forms of uh, material pleasures in order to take us away from, from reality and fixing ourselves. Okay, but the last point, and this is really what I want to focus on, is we, a bunch of you guys said that people do drugs in order to have a spiritual experience. And there's something very real to that. Native Americans utilized mescaline and peyote and uh, magic mushrooms. I have a few students who were atheists, and then they came back to me and they, after having done mushrooms, and they said, Rabbi, we believe in God. So uh, there's definitely room for uh, spirituality in, in the drug experience. So the question is, is that, is that a positive? So let's look at one more source that I so have I'm here. A, I have a question. Yeah. So do you think that there's a possibility that certain spiritual experiences when taking drugs can make a person closer to not only believing that there's a God, but believing that there is a way of religious life with God. Absolutely. A lot of good can come out of drug experiences. That doesn't mean that there, that there isn't also bad that can come out of it. Right? So uh, um, let's let, ask again at the end if we haven't touched on it. But, uh, okay. So... Um, Let's let's look at one last source. This is a source from Carl Jung, master of uh, you know the, the primary disciple of of Sigmund Freud, and he made an interesting realization in the 1930s, um, and he was embarrassed to write it because he thought that he would be ostracized, and uh, only after the advent of Alcoholics Anonymous, which basically came up with the same solution to addiction as Sigmund as uh, Carl Jung did he then come out and teach and, and write this publicly so he writes the alcoholics craving for alcohol is the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness expressed in the biblical language as the union with God you see alcohol in Latin is spiritus as in wine and spirits and you use the same word for the highest religious experience as well as for the most depraved poison. The helpful formula, therefore, is spiritus contra spiritum. Alcoholism is fixed with spirituality. So Carl Jung came upon a, a, Carl, yeah, a very, a very uh, unique um, idea, which is that the thirst for the drug of choice of an addict is really taking the place of a thirst for something much more profound, and that's a thirst for spirituality. 
And only when a person connects to spirituality does that addiction get cured. And uh, that's what AA, you know, uh, the 12 steps in, in depth discusses the need to let go and let God to give over to a higher power and to realize that that longing and that emptiness is really a thirst for connection to something deeper. So um, I, I'm reading a book uh, for a while on um, 12 steps and, and Jewish thought and, and Hasidic thought. And it's a great book. It's called The God of Our Understanding, I believe. And uh, it was yeah, by Chase Taub. Yeah, it's a great book. And, and he points out that the only difference between an addict and a regular person is that the addict has a harder time hiding from the pain of existential angst and spiritual thirst. And therefore, they can't hide from it. So they have to drown out that pain. Most people, most people can get through life never really thinking about the big pictures of who are we and why we're here, what life is all about. But he says for the addict, it's, it's painful to, to, to feel this world. They feel the pain of disconnection from their source. And therefore, they turn to alcohol. So says he that, the, that they're really, they're the most spiritual people. And that's why alcoholics and addicts often, when they recover, become incredibly spiritual people because they always had that in them. Just that the rest of us are just very easily bribed by the simple pleasures of life that we don't even think about the deeper questions. So I always thought that was really fascinating. So um, any questions on that point before we move on? Yeah. What about um, the commandment or the encouragement to get uh, drunk on Purim and on Simchas Torah and on Passover? Simchas Torah, there's no mitzvah to get drunk. It's uh, actually not, uh, most rabbis aren't so happy about it. Um, uh, Passover is, there's a thing to have four cups of wine, but you're having them in the midst of a meal and over a long period of time. So the goal is not to get drunk. The goal is to make four blessings, which we always do on wine. Purim is a completely different experience. And you got to wait around till Purim to hear my talk on why we get drunk on Purim. Is it? Can you smoke pot instead of drinking wine? So or... I, I happen to know one rabbi who for sure I've been told permits and, rec- and recommends for people that don't like to drink alcohol. I think personally that it's the wrong experience for Purim. Because Purim, the reason we drink on Purim is not to have an elevated experience. It's to remove the inhibitions and the barriers. So it's not about getting high. It's about being real that's my personal perspective but uh again ask your rabbi uh to find out what you should do when Purim comes around okay so uh moving onward i want to share with you a little bit of kabbalistic insight into um into highs natural highs spiritual highs and and what to do with them and by the way, Rebecca, I see you're tuning in. You should be in the live Zoom class right now, which is happening. And if you want to know why Jews like smoking, you should have been here for the beginning of the talk where we talked about some of the uh, ancient biblical sources for weed. But uh, make sure to watch the, from the beginning. All right. Or listen to the podcast, guys. Everything will be uploaded to the Rabbi, uh, the Gavriel Haran Show, wherever podcasts are found. Okay. So what does Judaism say about drugs as a mean of spiritual connection? So I want to share with you one of my favorite Torah lessons, which uh, you may have heard from me before, but uh, it never gets old because it's the, one of the most truest things. And when you realize this lesson and you internalize it, your life will be a different life. So the Torah says that every experience in life has three phases. Every experience Phase one in the language of Kabbalah is that everything starts with a light. And that's called the first light or the first greatness or the first elevation. Then the light is taken away and you get plunged into what's called the uh, constricted consciousness or smallness um, or the first or a state of darkness. She's here, ladies and gentlemen. Rebecca is here. All right. Good. Uh, good to see you. Uh, hope you're sober. All right. Uh, <laughs> so everything starts with a high, then it goes to a low, 
And then you're given the opportunity in the darkness to build back your, on your own to get back to that place of high, and then it becomes yours. Okay, and that's called the godless Shani or the second light or the second elevation or second greatness. So everything starts with a free high, then the high is taken away, and then you have to earn it. And that's the paradigm of Judaism. And the, the explanation is that free gifts don't last. Free gifts don't last. So therefore, the things that we that are real in life have to be earned. So every experience starts out with a free gift of inspiration that you have to earn, and it's taken away, you're left in the darkness, you have to earn it back on your own, it becomes part of you, and then it's yours forever, and the process begins again. It's, I call these two stages, inspiration and integration. The problem is that most people, when the inspiration leaves, what do they do? Peace. They leave with it. They quit. They quit. So there's something called love at first sight, right? Or beginner's luck. You know, you have someone that they, you know, Rabbi, it's happened to me so many times when I was on college campus. Rabbi, I'm in love. I met the girl of my dreams. It's amazing. We complete each other's sentences. We like the same ice cream flavors. We listen to the same music. That's about all we have in common. But that's, it's great, right? And, uh, and then inevitably, two weeks later, few months later they come back and they're like rabbi it's over we lost the spark and uh, the reason for that is because that spark is actually a biochemical experience it's the release of endorphins that come about from a desire to procreate it's a psychological experience a physical sensation and psychologically speaking that sensation cannot last more than two years you get used to it and it goes away and at that point, most people think, oh, I guess it was the wrong one, and they break up. You know, and uh, the classic example is when you see someone from across the room, and the music starts playing, and the wind starts blowing, and suddenly everyone else disappears, and it's like you have that love at first sight experience, and then, uh, and then you talk to each other, and you realize, oh, like there's nothing else there besides their looks. But sometimes their looks are so good that you forget about the fact that they have no personality, and then you fall in love with them madly until the next morning. And uh, that is the experience. So the question is, what happens then when you lose that experience of infatuation? So that is the opportunity to separate between the men and the boys, or the women and the girls. Is Do you stay with it? Do you put your money where your mouth is? Do you do the work to build the relationship? Or do you drop it like an old hat? And uh, the reality is, according to Kabbalah, that first inspiration is a taste. It's a taste of how good it could be in 10 years. 10 years of hard work, you're going to have an amazing relationship. But it takes that long. It's all about the commitment. The high never lasts. And every high is replaced by a low right inevitably every high with it comes a low and the problem is that the more you get high so it raises your bar of normal right your low keeps getting lower and now what used to be normal feels low but it used to be normal so we start to get that's how addiction comes it builds up a pattern that you get high you fall back to where you were before but now it feels low now you gotta get high again and more often and more frequently in order to get you back to that state that's become your new norm so i have a, a friend of mine um, when I was a, cam a campus rabbi, one time uh, my partner in crime was driving home uh, to upstate New York one evening in the winter and his car uh, skidded and spun around 360 degrees on a four-lane highway and came stopped at a dead stop facing the in oncoming traffic. And uh, he thought it was over. Thankfully, you know, everyone else braked and he was able to turn around and get back on. He was really shooken up. And uh, he said the next day when he woke up, he felt like he was on another planet. He was so happy to be alive. He realized he came face to face with death. And he was like, 
I took out the garbage this morning and I wanted to sing and dance and hug everyone. He said, just looking at my kids, like kids crying, I just was so happy to be alive. He said, everything was ecstatic. And I actually experienced this when I got out of the hospital from COVID. But that was not because I came face to face with death. I didn't. It was because I was high from uh, steroids. But everything was ecstatic. It was amazing. And uh, I remember I said to my friend, he's like, I'm never going to forget this. My life, I'm a new person. I said to him, mark my words, write it down, because in two weeks, it's going to be gone. And life will be back to normal. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Does that mean it was fake? No, it wasn't fake. It was real. He was really thankful to be alive. But if you want to internalize that gratitude, you have to work. You have to engender an attitude of gratitude that's a lifelong expression of who you are. And that's why that's probably the primary goal of Judaism is to teach us to be grateful for the good in our lives. And uh, that's why the word Jew, Yehudi, means one who gives thanks. Because that's our primary purpose in life is to learn to be thankful for with what we have. So another, another way of expressing this is that a person, imagine a person uh, going through the desert, through, through the woods on a dark, stormy night. And they don't have a flashlight. And they don't know how to map out their, their way. But every once in a while, there's a flash of lightning. And in that flash of lightning, they get clarity on the way to get to the next section. So what happens is they wait in the darkness. Then there's a flash of lightning. They get instant clarity. That's an inspiration. And then the clarity leaves them. They're left in the darkness. But it's in the darkness that they move across the forest. So the growth really takes place in the darkness. The inspiration it just gives you direction and inspiration where you have to go. Yaakov, you have a question? Yes, I have a comment. Uh, but on what you were saying very beautifully about the uh, pattern of going from, from light to dark and then earning you know, that inspiration again, um, that spark. So we understand that's the same paradigm of what we're going through now between Pesach and Shabbat. That's right. We're about to get there. You're going to get there. I was going to go for it. So one of the thank you, Yaakov, for for taking me there. So one of the the perfect and uh, and and most quintessential expressions of this in Judaism and in uh, in the Torah is the journey from Passover until Shavuos. Passover took place on the fifteenth of the month of Nisan. We just experienced Passover. And then the Jewish people journeyed through the desert for 49 days until they arrived at Mount Sinai and received the Torah on the 50th day. So that journey is the journey from inspiration to integration. And I'll explain to you how that is. That according to Kabbalah on Passover, the Jewish people were on the lowest level of impurity when they were almost the lowest level when they were in Egypt. They were on a very low spiritual level According to Kabbalah, they were on the 49th level of impurity. And had they reached the 50th level, their souls would have been destroyed. They wouldn't have ever been able to get out of Egypt, out of the Egyptian slavery mentality. And the number 49 is significant because there are seven aspects to the physical world, seven days of the week, right? Seven, number seven is a number of uh, the physical, the world of nature, seven notes in a musical scale, seven uh, distinct notes, at least seven uh, distinct colors in the rainbow, Seven seas, seven continents. Number seven is a seven Harry Potter books. Number seven is a very important number in Judaism. It represents the physical world. It also represents our emotional makeup. According to Kabbalah, we're made up of seven different uh, distinct emotions. And the number seven times seven is all the permutations of those seven elements. So the Jewish people were lifted up on Passover from the 49th level of impurity to the 50th level of holiness. That's what took place, according to Kabbalah, on the night of Passover. We didn't deserve it. It was a free gift. We were totally uh, disconnected uh, from spirituality. We were lifted up to the highest level of spirituality and then dropped down into the desert. And we had to walk through the desert for 49 days and internalize that spiritual revelation, make it our own, make it part of our life until we finally arrived at Mount Sinai and received the Torah on the 50th day, which is the totality of all those expressions. And then it became ours. We received 
that level that we had on on at Passover, and then at Passover at when it was a gift, and then it became ours. So another paradigm that we have in the Torah for this is Shabbos. The Talmud tells us that on Shabbos we received a higher level of soul, a higher level of consciousness, a deeper connection to who we are. Yet after Shabbos goes away, we lose that soul. We lose that connection. So what was the point of it if we lose it? So the answer is, is that it gives you a taste of who you really are, a deeper connection to your true self. And then you have the next six days of the week to earn it back, to internalize and make it part of your life, to integrate it. And then the next Shabbos starts on an even higher level of connection to self. That's why Shabbos is always expressed in twos. You have to keep two Shabbases. The Talmud says, if only the Jewish people would keep two Shabbases, immediately the Mashiach would come and the world would be redeemed. So it's all about connection to self. So the problem we have is that we are inspiration junkies. We live in a disposable generation. Movies, pure inspiration. You don't have to work for it. Reading a book like they used to do back, when I, back in my day was hard work. You had to use your imagination, you had to use your eyes, it went slowly. But a book was an internal experience. Watching a movie is completely free, you don't have to do anything for it. And therefore, easy come, easy go. But we run from high to high to high. We're always looking for the next high. That's why some people are so uh, addicted to highs that they have to now do things that are, you know, dare, you know uh, uh, death-defying, skydiving, and extreme sports because they need that thrill. They need that high. But the problem is, you know, I've led a lot of trips to Israel. And, and I, I think the birthright experience, the, the traveling, touring experience is pure inspiration. You are in a different world when you go on a trip to Israel. It's unbelievable. You're picked up. You're inspired. But, uh, you know, it's kind of like summer camp. You're so into it. You love everyone summer camp. You know, the last day of summer camp, you're like, BFF. We're going to stay in touch. We're going to write every day. And then like two weeks into school season, you forgot about all your summer camp friends and you moved on with your life. The same thing with a trip, birthright trip. You're so inspired. You're in touch. They're chatting on the WhatsApp group. Everyone's in touch with each other. And after a few weeks, it's gone because the high fades. I had so many people on trips to Israel said, Rabbi, I want to learn Hebrew. I want to come to your house for Shabbos. I never saw them again when we got back to the States because the inspiration fades very quickly. It's it's too Easy. So I want to share with you one last uh, insight into how to hold on to inspiration. So natural highs are part of life. There are moments, milestone moments, where you will be inspired and high. Meaning the graduations, the weddings, the childbirths, right? There are moments of natural high. There are the holidays. Jewish holidays are built upon inspiration. Studying about the holidays, being naturally inspired by what's going on. And then there are natural highs, you know, going on a hike or just moments. Some days you wake up and you're just inspired or you accomplish something fantastic and you're just, you're coasting. So, so how do we harness those experiences? How do we hold on to them? So one of the great uh, Hasidic masters gives the following, the Kedushas Levi gives the following metaphor. He says, inspiration is like a soul. It's like a soul. And what does a soul need in order to live in this world? What does a soul need? Needs a body. Needs a body. So says the Kedushas Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, says that in order to hold on to inspiration, you have to put the soul of inspiration into a body of action. So he recommends, as do many other sources, that true growth means harnessing the inspiration by putting it into small actions. And there's a Jewish custom that at, after holiday seasons, after Shavuos and after Simchas Torah, which are the two different holiday seasons, to take on something very small in your life that you're going to consistently do for at least two months. Take on something very, very small to learn something for five minutes a day, to say a certain prayer, to give charity every day. It has to be something small and consistent. It's through that consistency that the inspiration lasts. And it's an unbelievable experience when you realize that you've actually held on to it and literally transformed into a different person. So that is my 
lesson for today. And um, I think that if we can internalize this lesson of natural highs and learning how to hold on to inspiration, how to internalize inspiration, how to not quit when the going gets tough, and uh, that's that's going to truly live, lead to a lifetime of inspiration, growth, and most importantly, joy. And true joy is the pro- byproduct of, of our effort and our commitment. So uh, questions, comments? Let me hear from you guys. Insults? Uh, yeah, I do have a comment. Hello? Yes. 